0: Hello and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Marcagiani. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I've dedicated my practice to learning everything there is to know about optimizing mental and emotional health. In this podcast, we answer the question, what does it take to live a life of truth, beauty, freedom, vitality, purpose, and joy? In a mix of solo episodes and interviews, I'll be talking about all the things that fascinate me, nutrition, nature, the latest science, psychology and psychotherapy, mindfulness and meditation, supplementation and more. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to episode 14 of the Good Mood Podcast. In today's episode I talked to Dr. Lachlan Crawford, fellow mental health focused naturopathic doctor. Lachlan has a practice in Toronto helping patients find the root of their mental health concerns. She incorporates mindfulness into her practice and has participated in a few silent meditation retreats. A 30-day retreat in Thailand and a 10-day silent Vipassana retreat. We talk about mindfulness, self-compassion, chronic low grade anxiety, and how carrying an umbrella everywhere you go might actually undermine your ability to be happy. This is an awesome conversation where we talk medicine, meditation, mental health, and more. How's that alliteration for you? Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Lachlan. Welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. And uh so we were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh chronic low grade anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you can describe that to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we just had
1: a great chat about it, um, and you know, this is something that I see a ton in my patients. It's also something that I've struggled with, you know, myself in the past, and and really getting another lens on it is really helpful. So I was I was telling Talia tell that I read an article. Um, I think it was in Psychology Today, um, and it was about how. Some people who have this chronic low-grade anxiety, they actually choose it, not consciously, but I think, you know, subconsciously and kind of habitually. They choose and they they would rather have chronic low-grade anxiety in their body all the time because it affords them some um, belief that they're actually staving off kind of the bigger, scarier anxieties of like bigger events. So they say, if I constantly stay tense and vigilant and watching and, and worrying and making sure that everyone's happy and making sure that I'm people pleasing, then I'm going to, I'm going to avoid being thrown out of the group or I'm going to avoid, you know, bigger, bigger anxieties that, that might be, you know, evolutionary in a sense, because, you know, we don't, it's, Mm -hmm. it means the end of survival if we're thrown out of the tribe Mm -hmm. and if we can't, you know, connect with others. So If we're constantly, social anxiety is a really good example of that. Like if we're constantly socially anxious, then we're at least affording that we're going to be protected by group members.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, mm -hmm.
0: Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was like that idea of, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, go over conversations in my head after I've had them when I'm driving home from the party to make sure I didn't commit a faux pas or say the wrong thing or offend someone. I'm going to analyze everyone's facial expression and, and torture myself essentially.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's awful, right? When we do that. And it's, and there have definitely been times when I've been stuck in that kind of piece and then times when I'm totally not. And it's like, what's the difference? And I find and the article was saying that people choose to do this because they, they think that they're avoiding these bigger, scary things. And I think, you know, we were saying that it's just such a falsehood to, to believe in that you had a really great analogy, but the, the umbrella, I think it'd be really nice to share that.
0: Yeah, it's like this idea, I mean, we were talking about my dad and how he's like, I worry today, so I don't have to deal with things tomorrow. And this, is, in a sense, is justifying his generalized anxiety disorder, <laughs> undiagnosed, obviously, as many people born in the 50s are. And right. um, and it's this idea of leaving the house every day with an umbrella just in case it rains. And, and then we were saying, you know, I mean yeah, that's that's great. But then most of your life is spent with one of your hands tied up holding an umbrella and you're not free and you're not enjoying your life. And then when it does rain, okay, you have an umbrella, but is it that bad to get rained on?
1: Right. Yeah. I love that so much. I mean, for two reasons, because yeah, being tied up with the umbrella is so annoying. We live our lives constantly being tense. I mean, how many times can I look back even on the last five years and be like, I w- I know I didn't enjoy that birthday party because I was so worried about making sure that everyone was happy at the party mm-hmm. instead of just being like, people are going to be fine. They're here because they like me, you know, at, at my own birthday party, for example, you know, being like, I don't have to constantly attend to other people. It's nice to be a good hostess, but like, do you really need to do it out of anxiety or do are you doing it out of love? You know? Mm-hmm. So, so how many times have I not enjoyed things in the past? And then let's say something does happen you know, it, it, is, it, is it worth all those times when you were carrying around an umbrella? And, and does that really help you manage through the situation? Mm. So I, I was thinking, you know, when I when I consciously reflect on this, because I know sometimes I can get kind of stuck in it unconsciously, when I when I really consciously think about it, I say to myself, I would much rather, rather than unconsciously t- spending all of my energy being vigilant and tense and holding on to things and, and scanning and making sure that everything's okay... I would much rather take all of that energy and pour it into learning to trust that I'm actually going to be okay when the big things do happen. Mm. So let's say, you know, I don't really have a good example of this, but like I'm nervous about, um, you know, friendships are really, really important to me. So interpersonal relationships, let's say like, I'm I'm really worried about losing friends um, if they, you know, move across the ocean or this or that. And I'm I'm constantly like, you know, oh, I really need to keep it this way. But like, I would rather put energy into trusting that like, you know what, if someone goes away and the friendship is strong enough, like we're going to be okay. And we're, even if we're, you know, someone, if we don't chat for six months, we see each other again, like that friendship is going to be okay. Maybe this isn't like the best Mm
0: -hmm. example,
1: but like, you know, I, I'd rather you lose your job, you lose your apartment. I'd rather put, energy into being like, I've got a network around me. I've got a little bit of a safety network and I've got the emotional resilience to trust that things are going to be okay, that I've got the resources and I'm not going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd rather build that up than constantly scan to avoid the potential of losing my apartment or losing my job or something like that. Um, You can't really change someone being across the ocean, but yeah. Does that analogy make sense of, you know, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like this trust is as at the bottom of all of that busy anxiety. So you're at the party that you've planned. You want everyone to have a good time, and underneath the the deep fear is that you're going to be abandoned. Essentially, right? That's the deep primal fear. And it's if you bring it to consciousness or your actual conscious awareness, you're like, "This doesn't make any sense." My friends are not going to abandon me because my party didn't go amazingly. They love me. They're here because they want to be here. They're here because they like me. We could just sit on the grass and it would be an enjoyable time. Right. But the the chronic low-grade anxiety wants them to have an awesome time and part of that's out of love too and and you know under you know right above or maybe right below that uh low-grade anxiety that's trying to keep everybody happy potentially is this this trust that you bring up to your awareness of no my friends would have a good time if we just lay on the grass and drank fizzy water or whatever (laughs) like it doesn't have to be a big affair and, and yeah, if, if my friend moves away and we're not really good at keeping in touch for a few months, the friendship will be there. And maybe if it's not there, then that's just revealing more to me about the the, the quality or the integrity of that friendship. And it's not because I did something wrong necessarily, or if I did right. something wrong, maybe I have the opportunity to fix it. So it's like this trust in your, like you said, your resilience, or your ability to combat these situations versus the chronic low grade anxiety is more about trying to stave off the big situations that we can't actually stave off right yeah doing those things you know
1: yeah so I mean I think there's so many different levels of acceptance that we're talking about here right like one is that you know life is gonna happen to us no matter what people are gonna move you might lose your job you might you know things your parties won't go amazing every single time right so I, nothing is gonna go perfectly all the time one level of acceptance another level of acceptance is like actually, things are pretty okay as they are, you know, like, even if we just lie on the grass and drink fizzy water, um, even if they're not going 100% perfectly all the time. And then even underneath that, it's like, even when the big things do happen, I'm going to be okay, even if it's tough for a little while. So there's, there's so many levels that we're talking about. And acceptance is kind of, I think it's, it's such an important concept to talk about and explore. I think it's, it's missed conceived sometimes because I think it, it's kind of conflated with apathy and, and like just letting things go and and being a little bit, um, laissez faire, just being like, oh, I just accept the way that things are. That's certainly not my concept of acceptance, but I think, you know, just working with those different levels of being like, you know, not everything's going to be okay. Things are fine as they are, but even if things do happen, Mm. um, then I'm, I'm going to get through it. Mm.
0: And It's a good point about acceptance, right? So sometimes, and we were talking about this before we started recording, about working uh, with patients in clinic, and this idea of it's it's well, actually, we didn't even say this, but this it's this like really uh, dangerous territory when someone is suffering to say these platitudes like everything happens for a reason, or to, or for pushing for acceptance, or even in our own cells, pushing for acceptance within oneself when we're maybe at the stage of developing awareness about the inner situation or how we're actually feeling and maybe an acceptance. I don't know. Do yeah, What do you think about that in terms of acceptance being something that one can strive for?
1: Mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, yeah, acceptance is, is, not something that we can just generate. I don't think it's something that you can just be like, I'm just going to accept this. It's maybe like a goalpost down the road, but there are things in front of it that I think are really important. And you brought one up is awareness is a huge piece of that, right? Even just being aware of your chronic low grade anxiety Mm -hmm. of of something is a big step towards soothing it a little bit or or working with the underlying core beliefs and assumptions Mm
0: -hmm. that work
1: into Our anxiety. You know, you said, you know, in that one example that we're using, the core belief is I'm going to be abandoned. And that's so common. You know, other really common beliefs are I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be good enough, um, I'm not lovable. You know, these are really common motifs that happen in so many um, that suffer from this low grade anxiety. So even just becoming aware of some of these pieces are really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think something that I really like about mindfulness meditation is that it, it sort of, it practices that muscle of becoming aware of some of these things. Sometimes like conscious, you know, um, thoughts like that of like, I'm not good enough. Like you can become aware of those, but then also just really importantly, becoming aware of your body sensations, mm. right? If you're like, I'm constantly in this tense, we talk about like the physical aspect of this chronic anxiety, like your stomach hurts, your tense, like maybe you're grinding your jaw at night. Um, becoming aware of those physical sensations is also really excellent. So I think that's one of the steps of getting towards acceptance um, and kind of like a relaxing and a letting go into things is just being aware of like how pent up we are to start with, you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. I'm glad that we segued quickly into mindfulness (laughs) and, but yeah, one of the big things with mindfulness is this parsing out experience, right? Like what am I thinking? What what is my mind doing? What are my thoughts doing? What's my, what's in my body? Um, what's in my emotions and maybe behaviors as well. If, um, if, if we're noticing sort of um, because th- these things all bleed into one another and often it's this big mass of information that we're, you know, if you sort of, you know, what am I thinking right now? Oh, I'm thinking. And then we, we come up with some sort of explanation. Um, but you know, it is like working a muscle to figure out, oh, what were the thoughts that went through my head? Oh, those are the same thoughts that always go through my head when the situation arises. or mm. the body sensations? What does anxiety feel like in my body? And even the idea, like, of recognizing that chronic low-grade anxiety is there is is probably something that you can do because of your mindfulness practice. Mm. That's true, yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. I
1: think mindfulness <laughs> really is a superpower. And it's so funny. Like I I, I teach mindfulness all the time and it's I, I've yet to find a really great way to introduce it to a group because you can't go through a grocery store checkout line without hearing something about mindfulness, right? So everybody's heard about it. How many people practice it? Um, and, and I think it's kind of one of those things that everybody is like, oh, I know I should be mindful, but I don't know how. Or I don't, it's like, it just feels like such a chore and such a task. Sometimes even for myself, I'm like, oh, I don't want to sit and meditate. It can just be... I don't know, it just, it feels like another thing to do and it's hard to get myself down on the mat sometimes. So so I've yet to find a really great way to introduce mindfulness, Um, but I think it's just a learning, it's going to get you to a place that, that we talked about, that acceptance and that relaxation, but it's just this like building up of just like becoming familiar with yourself, which is just like the most, it's such a beautiful, intimate thing to be able to do, right? And just to be able to befriend yourself and that's, that's actually a great segue into the second piece where I usually talk about mindfulness is that it's really important, and this is something that I think is lost in a lot of the modern Western teachings of mindfulness of how it's been removed from its original religious teaching or, or traditional teaching, is that mindfulness was originally taught in the original scripts as um, the concept was introduced as having two wings of a bird. Mindfulness was one and compassion was the other and it was always taught hand in hand. So mindfulness is the non-judgmental awareness of what's going on in your mind and body and, and watching that and then having the the training to kind of come back and non-judgmentally just be with yourself training concentration. And then compassion is this like Really, really gentle, beautiful spirit that goes with it that's like, hey, that's okay. It's okay. Like, don't worry about it. And you really need that to go with the mindfulness because. Once you start to become aware of what's going on in your mind, it is so easy to judge that. Mm. Oh my goodness, it is so easy, especially with the like, I'm not good at this. That's the very first level, right, that you you come into contact with is like, oh, I can't do this. And then to be like, hey, you're just starting. Like everyone sucks at mindfulness to start. It's really uncomfortable to start which again is, is why I have a hard time
0: right. introducing what is it? it. What does it mean to be good at it anyways? I don't, yeah. I'm not good at it. I've been doing it for years.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, and that and that piece is lost. I think a lot of the time when we, when we go off and do these Vipassana meditations or if we, I mean, that's a very special, unique teaching. That's very centered on concentration, but um even just like general mindfulness, you know, using an app or something and just sitting down and focusing on the breath, like you start to get really raw. You know, that awareness can be raw. i really coming into contact with like, oh, these feelings are coming up and Ooh, that sensation. And I think that's why people avoid it. That's why I avoid it sometimes because it's like, whoa, I'm really feeling this stuff. And it's kind of hard to not pay attention when the goal of mindfulness is to pay attention. So mm-hmm. we're so used to running away from these things, especially in our culture mm-hmm. of, of filling it and like filling it with our phone and filling it with, you know, other kinds of stimulation. And as soon as you sit down, it can feel scary. Mm-hmm. And so building that compassion in and really making sure that you practice both at the same time. And you can do it with like, you know, structured practices of compassion, or you can just kind of like be gentle with yourself when you're practicing mindfulness and just be like, whoo, that was five minutes good job, <laughs> good stuff. but I'm, I'm all right. You know, I think, um, yeah, I think that's always something that I, I, I encourage and I really emphasize when I teach mindfulness is like, whoa, be gentle with yourself and like, you're going to be okay. and Just go slowly and love yourself. And even if you don't love yourself and just be like, ugh, it's okay. You know?
0: Yeah. It's also like the expectations of it too, because I think we, uh, perhaps erroneously assume that meditation and mindfulness is one form of meditation, but we, we might assume that mindfulness being meditation is um, is that you're completely still, you have no thoughts and you feel calm. Right. That is not how a lot of people's experience are. And and it might never be. because so if your body's not calm, that's not what the experience is going to be like. It's going to be anxiety or tension or sadness or whatever's coming up. And um, we actually call it it's funny it's it's sometimes called the paradoxical effect where somebody with anxiety sits down and it and it and has uh worsened anxiety or or an anxiety attack and that could be uh, over uh, to the point where it's overwhelming or maybe even dangerous for that person to jump right into a meditation practice at that time in their life um but it's it's a pretty it's i i don't know it's called the paradoxical effect, but it is if we're paying attention and what's there is intense anxiety that we've been pushing down perhaps or coping with in, in a way, um, keeping it at bay, then that's what's going to come up. And knowing that that's uh, okay and that you're doing it. And that's the other thing too. It's like, oh, your mind is busy. My mind was all over the place. I couldn't co- concentrate. Awesome. <laughs> you were yeah. Good. You, you noticed that. And that was all you needed to do was just be aware that that was happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You bring up a really good point about about the importance of mindfulness meditation practice, actually being trauma informed as well. So that people are really aware. And like, if you're starting a practice and you've had a history of trauma or, um, or you're doing it with a practitioner, like make sure that they are trauma informed because they need to, and you need to um, it's important to be able to have a safe place where you can allow things to come up at a, at a measured pace. And it's going to be met with someone who's going to know how to contain that. Um, you know, so if you're if you're sitting in, you know, bodily sensations or even just it doesn't have to be like a physical trauma. It can just be that the like I said, it's an intimate thing to be there with yourself. And if we're not very good at being with ourselves sometimes. And if you're sitting down and like really concentrating that, it can be really intense. So it is important. Um, And trauma-informed is a term that's kind of thrown around a lot, but just making sure that someone can really contain uh, difficult experiences and be there with you and not let you, you know, dissociate or be able to bring you back into a safe space
0: is really important. Mm -hmm. And and also like a context that allows and gives permission for you to let go of the practice if you want to sometimes we don't feel we're allowed to do that in certain group meditation settings we don't want to disturb people but if you're in a group that's inviting that um then that would be a good thing i would think yeah absolutely yeah let's talk about well let's talk about how you got into mindfulness and meditation and that will probably take us to vipassana
1: (laughs) yes yes i already mentioned it um how did I get into it? So, I mean, I, I remember there was a turning point in my life and it, it sounds so funny to look back on because, you know, you don't, you don't realize it's a turning point at the time. It's kind of like, whoa, something feels, something feels big. Um, and I, it was, it was right after undergrad and I was about to go traveling for a year. And I was living on my sister's couch and I was reading this book. It was called Rebel Buddha by Lama Surya Das. And uh, and he's an American teacher, you know, but he he translates it in a way that was like very digestible to my early 20s self. And it was all about like, you feel different and you're not sure why. And it was just speaking to my kind of like introvert nerd self of being like, why do I feel different? And I've always kind of been that kind of like, young person that struggles with like existential like why and like I've always been that kind of a person it's it's partly why I got into mental health is because I'm so fascinated and taken by and magnetized towards suffering and and the alleviation of suffering and like what is it that makes people happy and what is it that you know takes happiness away and so I was reading this book and I remember like being up really really late one night and being like oh crap, like I had this like fear come over me because I knew that when I was reading, I couldn't unread, I couldn't unknow it. You know, I, cu- I was like, I can't, it wasn't saying anything crazy profound, but it was just like, it's okay to feel this way. And it's okay to be yourself. And there are, there are paths that include a lot of compassion and it's fine to be an introvert. He was just kind of speaking to me and, and just like the, the acceptance and compassion was just coming out of this book. And I was like, mm. holy crap. And, and I, And I couldn't unknow it and I couldn't go back to the way I was before where I just like wasn't thinking about this stuff or like, you know, I I felt existential that I didn't know how to turn towards it. And I was like, okay, now I can turn towards this stuff and know that there's a place or at least some teachings or some practices that will kind of help guide me through the experience of getting a little bit more intimate with what's already there inside me. So I read this book, and then I went traveling for the year, and I was I was deep into meditation during that year. I had a really nice morning practice, like every day I would get up and meditate for 20 minutes, and that is probably the most consistent my practice has ever been. (laughs) Since then, it's you know it's it kind of ebbs and flows, but I had this year, and I think especially being removed from my normal surroundings, it's easy to kind of like really dive into something and be like, who am I as as an early 20s person in another country, you know? Um, so I really I really enjoyed that. And then I, I started to think about what I was gonna do for work. And I, I decided that I wanted to go into medicine and come back and kind of reestablish myself in Canada and, and go to the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine where we both went. Mm. And so I then had to take this mindfulness practice that I was building elsewhere and then bring it home and reincorporate it into you know normal life here with like family and friends and obligations and all that stuff. And so that was a whole new practice again. And so I found other teachers and other practices and found other ways to, to continue to fold in new developments of mindfulness. And I think I've just, I've just continued to be fascinated with the continual evolution of what mindfulness can be and always returning back to my, one of my favorite concepts of mindfulness practices is just beginner's mind. Of mm. uh, and, and this is something that, it's one of the earliest teachings. And it's just like, look at everything as if you're, as if you're five, you know, if you've ever heard that, <laughs> that Reddit, feel like
0: Reddit Babies, are always, <laughs> babies yeah, are always high. Babies are always on mushrooms. They're always like, whoa. Yeah,
1: exactly. So like, if that's, if that's the case, if you, if you find yourself habitually being annoyed with someone or you're already like pre expecting someone to like do something and you're like, ah, just be like, you know, it, it's a practice of being like, wow, as if you've never seen something before, and it's it's really fascinating. It takes up a lot of time if you're really going to give yourself like, a half hour to do beginner's mind. Like you can walk around and be like, whoa, and and it's a great practice. You know, when you think about relationships and when you think about work, and if you're like, wow, oh, I've never I've never done this before. Not to say that you lose all skillfulness, but you you gain a sense of fascination and awareness mm-hmm. and and engagement with things, which is really lovely. So. So always returning to beginner's mind and reminding myself that I know nothing, no matter how much I've studied mindfulness, no matter how much I've taught it, no matter how many days or weeks or months I've spent in silent retreat, it's like, you are just a beginner. Just sit, just sit, just see what it's like. And just like connect with your breath or connect with whatever anchor you want to anchor with. Sometimes it's in your body. Sometimes it can be a mantra or whatever. And you just connect with that and you just go, what's going on now? You know, that's that's beginner's mind
0: yeah it's like i think when i think of begin- beginner's mind i think of awe and reverence and and like you said it takes a lot of time because so much of our lives as adults are supposed to be on automatic pilot so we can get the 20,000 things done we have in a day but if you have some time or even small moments to mm-hmm. really regard things as if you've never seen them before as if you're an alien can be really incredible for 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 Actually, I was talking, the the last interview I had, so the last episode was with uh, Fernando, and he's saying that the sense of awe decreases inflammation in our body. Oh so, my gosh,
1: I love that.
0: Yeah, it's like so many things that you can get from it, so it's really cool.
1: That's beautiful. And, you know, you asked the question about, like, where did I get this fascination with mindfulness? And when you said awe and reverence, it, sorry, there's going to be a cat that's going to hang out <laughs> with us now. Um <laughs> I'm reminded of some of my heroes that I was studying in university. And like, maybe this kind of started even before I read that book. But so John Muir is one of my Mm. big heroes. He is the founder of the Sierra club. He's like basically one of the earliest environmentalist, um, you know, leaders in the States. He had a big hand in like preserving a lot of uh, Californian wilderness. And he would go out and he wrote these amazing books that were basically just like, beautiful spiritual poetry, like he was absolutely a spiritualist, but it was just, it was just about nature. He would just go and talk about like, how beautiful are the Californian mountains (laughs) and the, you know, the pines and and he was just like, I love that his sense of reverence and respect and just like worship of the natural world. Mm -hmm. I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. And that,
1: and that awe is really important. And then um, Schopenhauer was another one. So he was, I think I have that name, right? We can, we can check it later. Mm -hmm. Philosopher. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. He's another philosopher and he, he did a lot of work just about the importance of like reverence for life Mm -hmm. and respect and just like, how lucky are we? And it's like, I feel like I got a lot of sense of gratitude in his writings. Mm -hmm. And so just reading those two authors early on, maybe kind of built um, or connected with that sense of like, yes, that is something that I can get behind Mm -hmm. the sense of like deep presence with something when you're just like, you know, a tree is magnificent, or like human beings are magnificent, or life in general is magnificent, is really amazing.
0: It's, and so many philosophers talk about this, so many spiritual practices uh, talk about this, where the image, and even in um, Jungian psychoanalysis, this idea of the image, which is the image of the soul, and how we can walk by a leaf, or we can walk by flowers, and it's like, oh, I got other things to do, versus um, sitting and, and, breathing in essentially appreciating the aesthetics at which aesthesis in from greek means to breathe in it's like breathing in the experience of sitting with it could be a flower or plant but it could be anything it could be you're sitting on the the subway and you're observing i don't know the upholstery but yeah this sense of awe and reverence and if it's beautiful even better if it's nature right nature has unlimited um capacity to give us awe but that's awesome yeah Tell us about uh, vipassana, like the, the silent retreats, because <laughs> I know you've yeah, done. Yeah, you've done them, right? I did a ten day, but I think did, you've done a long one, right? I did a I did a
1: month long one. Yeah, I did I did do that. It wasn't vipassana; it was a different style of teaching. Vipassana is really interesting. So, vipassana for for those who aren't familiar, it's like a a ten day, very structured um, course that's very focused on concentration. So, samadhi is um, the word for concentration. And it's really focused on, it's very scientific, uh, which I love about Vipassana, right? It's all about like, don't, don't just like trust some teaching, go in and really experience for yourself what it's like when you take all of your distractions away and you sit and you really concentrate, what happens? And then you're like, whoa, sensations are happening. And, you know, suddenly this is coming up and suddenly that's coming up and all sorts of stuff happens in these days. And people think that you're going to be bored, like, well, you're bored, but then you're also, (laughs) not bored, right? (laughs) So... So that's well, you're endlessly
0: entertained with a very busy mind. I thought my mind would be quiet in silence. Uh, nope, it nope. was louder than it's ever been
1: louder than it's ever been right. And it's so it's really cool to watch that. It's also like, whoa, this is inside me all of the time. Um, it's funny on the longer meditation retreat that I did. And I'll talk about the style that it was in a moment. Yeah. Um, I, I at the end of it I was in Thailand and at the end of it I went to some internet cafe and I I wrote uh, an email to my family It was like hi I'm alive like you know I did it it was really great and I was like also here's a list of all the songs that were playing like I had this like playlist oh this cat's gonna do this now mm-hmm. um, I had this playlist that was playing in my mind um just like on repeat it was nuts it would just be like days at a time where and and I wrote this list and it was like wumba tub thumping and like you know just like like lamb chops play along and i wrote this list out and it was, and everybody loved it i thought it was very funny but like that's the kind of stuff that happens in your mind but there's also other stuff that's happening right there's other there's other processes that are coming up um the the style of meditation that i was doing it was a lot more um traditional so it was in a it was in a thai Wat, so in a thai temple and it was under a teacher and, and they would give me teachings every day, but it wasn't, it wasn't a religious or traditional teaching. It was just about the experience of it. So in the same sense, it was kind of a scientific undertaking of ob- observing what happens when you do a thing. Um, and, and it just basically took the 10 day Vipassana experience, which was very <laughs> was intense in and of itself. And it just, it just deepened it to the point where I think my physiology started to be affected in a different, in a stronger way. Something that happened to me during the Vipassana retreat was I started to um, speak during my, during the night. So I used to, I was having nightmares and I was like speaking and sometimes kind of like shouting. And that was explained to me as it's called the, the Buddhist word for it is called klesha. And it's it's basically just like un, uh, unprocessed memories and things that are coming up at night. And I had a roommate that was telling me about it. I didn't realize it until the end because you can speak to your roommate at the end of the 10 day retreat. So she was like, you, you know, your nightmares were nuts. And I was like, what? Like I had no idea that this was even happening. And then I come back home and you know, I wasn't having nightmares here. So I think there's, there's these processes that are happening and things are coming up. um, Even if you don't realize it, even if you're just listening to, you know, Chumbawamba all day in your head, things are getting processed.
0: There was Um, so, yeah,
1: go on. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the in the Thai retreat, um, th- other things started happening. Like I was so concentrated, to, like two feet in front of me all day that I, I rarely would I look up. I would look up to like go like walk around the temple grounds. I'd walk up like to, to go to the little like dining hall or whatever. But it, w- it wasn't as much as in our normal day, right? So I'm, we're not, we're used to like looking out and, and changing the depth of our perception. And I, I would do that so seldom that I started to like get a little bit dizzy and I was like, what's going on with that? And maybe it was the heat. Maybe it was the, you know, I was adjusting to the, the change in feeding schedule or whatever, but I started to get a little bit dizzy and I talked about it with my, um, with my, with my teacher. And he was like, yep, that's, that's definitely a part of the whole practice. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting about how physiological and how physical the practice actually really does become.
0: Mm. It really is. Like, I mean, I know that, well, with Vipassana, um, it's a, a essentially about observing what's happening in the body at the level of sensation and and sort of scanning through the body and trying to, well, it isn't really trying, but the, the idea is the, the more you look, the more sensation becomes dissolved. And what was present, and the sits are long, it's 12 hours a day. A few of those are official uh, seated group meditations where you were you not allowed let's say I mean you can if you're desperate but you're, you shouldn't move and what that does again is just allow things to come up that normally you would um, interrupt by by shifting your body and the pain was excruciating when I first sat with that type of meditation and for a while I thought something was wrong with me and then the the, the dong would go signaling the end of the meditation um, session and I would stand up and feel completely fine But for a few days, I was obsessed with trying to get my posture right because I was convinced it was something wrong with my posture, my digestion. I was getting into the doctor mind and diagnosing myself and my gallbladder and whatever it was. And, you know, and I was also aware I was doing that and naming the tendons and it's not, you know, not quite necessary, but that was happening. And, um, and then I, I sat down one, one session and, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got it. I don't have any pain. I, I feel awesome. I feel perfect. There's no twinge. There's no discomfort. Then I, you know, it's usually a few breaths. You're, it's maybe day seven, eight of complete silence and, and daily meditation. So you can get into the practice pretty quickly. I think I take a few breaths. I feel this deepening of awareness and under maybe two inches below the surface of my skin is all the sensations of pain and electricity and fireworks and a knife stabbing and whatever else is going on in my body and i was like whoa that's not that's going on all the time it's not that the meditation is causing this pain it's that the meditation is allowing me to access the the sensations that are already that are always in my body and it was like this this realization of whoa and then also in my head i was like what's the point of this why are we just sitting and looking at our pain and, <laughs> and then the whole thing went on and on but it was interesting and i think pain became something different in that experience that was the biggest Um, take home was this, this relationship with physical pain. And um, because you're sitting with it for hours, and you're sitting with physical discomfort, and that translates to mental and emotional discomfort as well, any sort of discomfort and suffering, which is essentially what Buddhism aims to help us deal with, and, um, or accept in that sense. And, and, uh, yeah, and just, and, and so what, what came to my realization was that it was the resistance that caused the majority of the suffering when it came to pain. And so by allowing it or labeling any sensation as just sensations, it was something I could sit with It didn't make it right. Or it didn't make it um, desirable, let's say, but it was something that was just there and that I could sit for an hour and I didn't have to have to move or adjust or tell myself a story or feel my muscles brace against the sensations and, And for a few days after that, after the after the the retreat, I noticed my relationship with pain was very different. Like I was eating these really spicy Doritos (laughs) with a group of friends. (laughs) Not to advocate Dorito consumption, but (laughs) it was happening. Or some sort of chips. It was like these ghost pepper chips, and my friends were like, "Careful, careful, don't eat them." And I I ate a whole one, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, I feel like a a growing sensation in my mouth, Um, and now I'm feeling it peak, and now I'm feeling it subside." Right,
1: right. That's, that's beautiful. I think that that is a great way to tie it back to what we we're talking about at the beginning about having this constant low grade anxiety, because we're afraid of the things it's like that we're afraid of not being able to handle things. So we'll we'll stick with this clinging and aversion of like, I'm just going to stay here in this like slightly uncomfortable place because I'm not ready to go there. But if we if we do the practice of mindfulness meditation, and you don't have to sit on a mat for 10 days to do it, you know, we can practice it in other ways. But like, if you actually sit and face the things that we're afraid of, right, we face those big pieces, and they don't have to be happening right now. But you can just look at those, those underlying senses of like, I'm going to be abandoned, I'm not good enough, you know, all these things, turn towards them and sit and like really feel that you can change your relationship to it. Mm-hmm. We can change physical pain, emotional pain. We can, we can understand that oftentimes the sensation starts, it peaks, and then it, it subsides. And, and we're okay through that. And maybe the more that we practice this, it's just beautiful. I'm, I'm literally reminding myself of these things as I say it, because I need the reminder too. The more we can sit with these things and watch them and not die when we experience them, because that's the fear, right? It feels like this, like, ah, I need to like not feel this because I think I might die if I feel it or it's, I can't, I can't withstand it. I can't, I can't live through that the more we experience that we don't die when we sit with these really difficult emotions or even just everyday emotions or more mm-hmm. sensations, the more we'll start to trust that we're actually going to be able to make it through everything so that therefore we don't need to sit with this constant low-grade anxiety
0: mm-hmm. in the hope
1: that we're going to stave things off. Right. So we can actually like let go of that umbrella because we're going to be okay when the rain comes. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's, you know, I think all of, all of, uh, Trust essentially is is understanding that peak and how it subsides. and that might happen in one sensation like I'm noticing tension in my body or anxiety is peaking and I and on the way up, I, I'm like, is it ever gonna stop? but knowing everything comes down. everything returns to baseline. That might happen within an hour, within minutes. and then over the course of one's life, these bigger, more existential questions, Um, maybe, so these, maybe mid, mid mid-level existential questions like the umbrella, um, you know, oh, I forgot my umbrella. I'm in the rain. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Eventually I go inside, dry off. I'm not going to be wet forever or cold forever. Um, and then these bigger things, like the big things in life, the lost relationships, the people passing away, the big job losses, maybe trust is understanding that, like those things are going to peak and reach their maximum potential for suffering and eventually will subside. And it's that whole study that they've done where, you know, somebody who um, gets into an accident and is paraplegic and somebody who wins a lottery within, I think it's five years are about both the same level of happiness. Um, But if you were at a crossroads choosing which one you'd want, you'd probably pick the lottery, but in the end you'd be just as you are when you started.
1: Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's encouraging. It's, (laughs) it's encouraging, but then I also understand that sometimes that can be like a little like, oh, there's no hope in like really fully changing how I feel. Right. I'm always going to come back to this baseline, but I think we really can modify our set points of, of happiness. Mm -hmm. If we can really work on some of these things that can hold us in these really tense
0: places. Mm -hmm. And maybe the baseline changes because I think the idea is that, there, there will be these peaks of of discomfort or or pain or anxiety or grief or sadness or whatever it is or overwhelming thoughts, whatever the sensation, whatever the phenomenon. Um, but it will return to baseline again. But if we're constantly bracing against those things and guarding against them and fighting them, like in the case of my my vipassana meditation with the pain, the pain was excruciating when I was fighting against it, and so I wasn't. Uh, I was always sort of not quite at the peak, but I was always, my baseline became maybe like three quarters of the way up to the peak. And maybe that's sort of a metaphor for the chronic low-grade anxiety where your, your baseline is never peace or calm or, or happiness. It was a little bit below that because of the, the the, the chronic bracing. Mm, yes. Um, and maybe actually like, you know, allowing things to kind of be a little bit unraveled. I don't actually know the answer to chronic low-grade anxiety, but perhaps mindfulness lies within that, the answer. But perhaps, like, um, allowing it to, to be whatever it is or allowing the quote-unquote catastrophes to just unfold, knowing that we've done what we can, um, that uh, maybe our baseline is is happier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then finding a way to package this and deliver it to people, you know, to help them understand. I think it's really, it's tough, right? Because it feels trite to just be like, you'll be fine, you know, <laughs> like just accept it. It's like, you can't just say that because it feels so dismissive. So I think it really is important to like go through the process with somebody, potentially, and coach them and train them. And I think practitioners are good at doing this with people to the degree that they've done it with themselves. Mm. To be able to sit through difficult, scary, you know, painful things to say, okay, like you're going to be able to go through this. If you just like, we need to create a new relationship with the thing that you're having, but we can't, we can't necessarily say that right at the beginning. Like, we're not going to change your pain. We're just going to change your relationship to it. People obviously want pain relief. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, I think it's an interesting thing. And I think that's where we kind of have to come at it. We're going to talk about our profession now, like as naturopathic doctors is that I'm simultaneously you know, being a doctor and saying like, we're going to help you. We're going to, we're going to alleviate these symptoms. That's what people are used to doing when they come into a doctor's office. They say, I've got ABC. I want to reduce these. And we're like, okay, let's rate it. It's like eight out of 10, seven out of 10, nine out of 10. We're going to, we're going to aim to bring these down. But then at the same time, maybe if it's an anxiety thing, maybe if it's a a panic thing, maybe if it's an ADHD thing, we're, we're looking at like, okay, how do we work with this to create a new relationship to these things? Even as, even as we bring them down, but like, just what is it like if if maybe we could stop bracing against things so hard for example
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's hard to, yeah it, it seems as if those two things are at odds right the acceptance versus let's actually fix what what you're coming in to get fixed but i wonder if they are at odds because it is sort of a, a melding of the two things it's like oh you know you're there's there's a hormonal imbalance or chronic stress um, and let's say cortisol resistance leading to inflammation, which leads to to your major depressive disorder, or it was one of the factors that's majorly contributing to it. And then at the same time, understanding that maybe chronic low-grade anxiety is also part of the major depressive disorder, and that, um, or maybe the um, the relationship with fatigue or or pain that often comes with MDD, major depressive disorder, is also at play, and and. Even how we we embrace so I mean also part of what we do is um, is recommend the um, one of the things that we do as naturopaths is make recommendations right and and some of those things are lifestyle changes or lifestyle recommendations and and a lot or taking herbs or supplements or um, you know coming in for regular acupuncture appointments or whatever it might be and so sometimes our um, Sometimes I think, you know, mindfulness or even accepting our internal states can help us achieve our, our goals as well, or be compliant with protocols or 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 take action when it comes to self-care. Because I think we, when we talked about experience, when it, when it comes to mindfulness, we're aware of our thoughts and our emotions and our body sensations, but also our behaviors as well and how those things lend to behaviors. So it's difficult. I mean, yeah, it's like with the metaphor with pain, you're like, well, I don't want to say, okay, hey, we're here to just learn how to deal with your pain but we're not actually going to change it
1: yeah yeah it's a, it's an interesting point I, I i came up against this when i was i was doing some training in psychotherapy in contemplative psychotherapy it was largely based in a lot of meditative practices of it just like basically how to teach someone meditation and how to be there with them in a therapeutic sense and i i felt like I was a bit stuck because it was I was a naturopath and I was like, I felt you know, as a naturopath, you're a doctor and you're you get prescriptive and you say like you're going to do such and such and people have relationships with their doctors in that sense. Where they're like, My doctor said so and so, so I'm gonna do so and so. Whereas as a as a therapist, you're you're more like I'm like you create a safe therapeutic space and you're you're less prescriptive, but you're more relational. Mm-hmm. And I think at first, when I was a really, really early practitioner, I was like, I can't have both hats on in the same visit. It was tough mm-hmm. to learn how to how to navigate that with people. I'm getting better at doing it. And I really actually appreciate moments when I'm telling someone like, okay, we're going to change your diet. We're going to build in some exercise. We're going to talk about blah, blah, blah. And also we're going to talk about some mindfulness pieces. And then often when it happens is that when patients come back and they say, I'm having difficulty with this, Um, you know, I wasn't able to change my diet. And that's when we can kind of turn to the to the therapeutic sense. We're like, okay, what's going on? Instead of being like, okay, we'll do it. Like, you know, like, this is a prescription, come back when you've done it. It's like, that's when I really love to have that relational sense with my patients and say, like, what's going on? Like, what's what are you feeling? And, and and you know that you know the prescription and you know what I've asked you to do, but like, I'm not going to just reinforce that bluntly. I'm just going to, I'm going to start to navigate this with you in a much more gentle or compassionate sense, maybe build in some awareness, maybe build in some inquiry into it. And mm-hmm. so I think there is a way to do this um, therapeutically, mm-hmm. but it, it takes some navigation as a practitioner to kind of figure out how to do that. Yeah. Because you, you do, you do a lot of, you know, counseling and, and prescription as well. So how do you find that?
0: And the same thing happened with narrative with narrative therapy, which is a very decentered form of therapy. It's, it's, um, it's more social work related and it's done usually in, in brief therapeutic encounters. And it's all about uh, bringing, you know, centering the power within the person that you're working with. And so, you know, we think of the authoritative sort of medical model where someone comes in, they're mm-hmm. deferring to the authority of the practitioner. The practitioner carries all the power, all the education, the knowledge knowledge is power says Foucault, and <laughs> right and so you're just saying do this and this and this and this is something that my grandmother was a smoker her doctor said if you don't quit smoking you will die she quit smoking so this was actually a tactic that i don't know in the 60s 70s was expected and obviously not 100 percent effective but was effective for some people in some narratives obviously my grand you know it's not going to work for everybody and that's why we don't do that <laughs> right and and um and so, with narrative therapy, really to make a recommendation is not quite. So, if if I wanted to be in a in a in a space of delivering nar- uh, narrative therapy, um, and then make a recommendation, it would feel like flipping a switch. And I didn't want that. I wanted more of a seamless transition. I wanted to be able to draw, you know, narratives within a person of of empowerment or their values or whatever it was that was important to them, while also holding space and and sharing my knowledge. And I think a lot of it came down to, um, listening really closely, not just for their, um, and we always say in narrative medicine, it's like, you're listening for the, the, um, subordinate stories. So the stories that are not being told. So once you know that you're a good mother, you're a a loving pet owner, you're a great artist. And these are maybe stories that have not been connected and and fleshed out. So you're listening for openings into that and threading them and allowing that person help to, to see them and thread them together. And maybe at the same time, while I'm listening for those stories, I'm also listening for stories of, of hormonal imbalance, maybe, or um, things that could be useful. Or sometimes people will just, will will sometimes tell you, like, oh, I don't really drink enough water. And yeah. we, can, we can explore that. And I think curiosity is the big thing. So exploring, well, why do you think you're not drinking enough water? Is it because someone told you you're not? Or is there some intuitive sense within you? It's telling you that you're dehydrated and let's be curious because I don't know what that feels like for you. I know that what that feels like for me and I've heard what people say about how it feels like for them, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if that applies to you. Um, But I I love what you said too about like getting curious when somebody comes back and so you can make your recommendations. You can say, okay, based on what you've told me, I think this would be a good thing and this would be a good thing and this would be a good thing and I'm going to write it all down for you. Come mm-hmm. back in a month <laughs> and the person comes back. And this is, you know, eight times out of 10, this is what's going to happen is that um, it, it was hard or it, stuff got in the way or maybe they didn't want to be, maybe they don't like eating those foods, and and but they didn't know. And mm-hmm. so really being curious and sometimes mm-hmm. the answer is like, oh, maybe this wasn't the right diet for you. Maybe this is something that would have made sense generally for this general condition, but maybe not for you as an individual. Um, or maybe there is something that we can examine or be curious about. And and then maybe that can lead us into this whole avenue that's really more closer to the root or the source of what's actually going on anyways. Uh-huh. You know, It's like, well, I couldn't prepare my meals because I have this major stressor going on. Whoa, okay, that is probably more significant than not enough berries, you know?
1: Right, yeah, totally. It kind of, it reminds me of the whole concept we were talking about before, a beginner's mind. You know, like come in and instead of like assuming that you know about the patient, be like, well, what's going on for you? Like, you know, explain it to me like I'm five, you know, like, let's, you know, like let, what's really happening for you. And that, that helps us get a little bit deeper and, and more intimate with what's going on.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Actually, the beginner's mind, it's like throw away your medical knowledge and just sit there. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's this interesting balancing act of sometimes you do need to throw away your medical knowledge and just be like, what is the emotional experience of what's happening to you for you to be able to or not be able to do the thing I've asked you to do? or Or just, you know like your experience of your symptoms, and then you you've, you've got to integrate that with like okay what do I also know about mm. you know, the, the physiology of what's happening here and it's it's this constant integration of these two pieces that I think is really important.
0: Right, because maybe the, the medical education or just all knowledge in general it helps um, lend to intuition, and so we think of intuition as this like kind of gift that hits us, but it's it's usually a culmination of our experience and and being able to observe really closely. So the medical knowledge might come in with the with the sense of Oh well, yeah, that does sound like dehydration. Okay, you know, um, but when we are observing the person, because we have this idea of menu consciousness, right, which is kind of exists within the conventional system as a way to regulate things, where it's a lot of it is about guidelines, someone comes in, you do this, if it's this, it's that, if it's this, it's a, it's a flow.
1: Oh, algorithms. An yeah. algorithm,
0: a flowchart, yeah. And um, menu consciousness, right? It's like, oh, we don't have that on the menu today. Okay, well then I'll, I'll get this or can I get this with chicken? And it's really, you're <laughs> you're reading from a list of things that uh, someone has told you existed before that maybe um, you know a, a, a mindful clinical encounter or a beginner's-minded clinical encounter starts from the ground up where you're just really like, oh, okay, observing things. Like, Because I could look at a tree and be like, ah, tree, I know what that is. It's got a trunk. It's got leaves. It's green. It's kind of grayish brown. Eh, seen those. Or I could sit with the tree and really like, what is this thing? Like, how is it taking shape? Like an artist would revere um, a subject that it's trying that that he or she is trying to draw. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting convo.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love this. And, and and the the concept we've talked about this before about like how much time it takes to have beginner's mind. And it it feels equally as true in, in general life as it does in the clinical encounter, right? Like if I had 15 minutes with each patient, there's no way I could be mindful. I'd just be like, ah, oh, cover my bases, no red flags. Are you okay? Here's a prescription gone. You know, like you, you, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And so I'm very grateful when I could be able to get to sit with my patients. And often I'm like, ah, oh, I wish we had more time, you know, like to just, I just, I love letting silence sit in the room. Mm-hmm. And then people just talk, keep, keep talking. It's beautiful when they finally have someone to talk to and they're, and they're taking the initiative and they're like, I need help with mental health. I'm going to go and talk. And they finally get the space, this non judgmental, very open, compassionate space. It is amazing what flows. Mm-hmm. Same thing in our regular life. Like if we give ourselves the night off, and this has been happening a lot since lockdown has been happening, I find, you know, I have nights where, and this is going to sound a little bit silly, but like I'll take the evening to water my plants. You know, like I have so many plants in my apartment. It's like, I love, it's, it's important to me to have life and, and greenery. And I'll just like, I'll go around and like really pay attention and be like, this one has a new leaf and look at and okay, anything, this, like the sponginess of this one. And like, I'll take a good amount of time to really go through it. And it's like, I don't know, that's really, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do to like really take care of something. And it takes time.
0: And that's beautiful because really you're, you're getting nature care as you do that. Right. You're. And as you you were saying that, I was like, I do not pay attention to my plants. <laughs> people will tell me, and this is maybe not a good advertisement, but people will be like, um, I think that plant's kind of dying, and I'm like, Oh no, what do I do? Or or a tree I had had aphids, um, and so you know, and but to really sit with them or anything, mm-hmm. and to, and to be like, Oh, this this leaf is spongy, or I really love how this looks, or I want to draw this plant, or I want to. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and really yeah being part- participating in the life of your plans yeah you adopted
1: <laughs> yeah yeah totally and I do the same thing with this cat I mean I'm fostering this cat and she's new to my life you know I've only had her for a couple of weeks but like she's so special She'll come sit on me and like I'll take time and just be like I'm just gonna sit and pet the cat and just I'm just doing that you know and I'm fascinated with what the cat does. And it is such a cool interaction and I love to be able to do that. And and it's very true that I have the privilege of time, right? I, I absolutely do. And I understand that not everybody has the mm. um, time and space to sit down and pet the cat for a half hour or take two hours and water your plants. But, and this kind of goes back to what we're talking about mindfulness, but like not everybody has 20 minutes every single day to sit down. Like maybe we've got children, maybe we've got like things to do. We've got like a really tight schedule. And that when I talk about beginner's mind and stuff taking time, there are ways to make it accessible to almost everyone, right? There are ways to, I talk about like walking meditations or just like very brief interventions where we can just, take a few deep breaths before we transition from work to home, you know, take a few deep breaths in the middle of your day, little ways to just kind of introduce mindfulness goes a really long way, especially first thing in the morning. I find this a lot, especially since lockdown, like having a structured morning routine that kind of sets your day in motion with a little bit of mindfulness, maybe a little bit of movement. It can really go a long way to kind of setting up your physiology and your mental inertia in a direction that's going to take you to just like paying attention to it a little bit more. Whereas if you wake up and you're on your phone, that's, that's you know, you're going to be, your dopamine is triggered and you're going to be more likely to seek dopamine again throughout the day. Whereas if you wake up and you do something like, you know, a few gentle stretches, it doesn't have to take all day, but do a few things and it's going to set you up in a direction that's going to be a little bit more sustainable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, a couple of years ago, I led a, like a five-day meditation challenge on, on a Facebook group. And I think it, there were three-minute meditations. And I think by Wednesday, I was sitting, I was taking the bus and I was like, whoa, I feel really calm and kind of happy. I'm like, I wonder if it's these meditations that I'm leading in the morning. There's three minutes and um, there was something about setting up the day that way that made a big difference. Um, And we talk about, yeah, you can be mindful doing the dishes. It's it's sometimes just takes a moment or um, asking yourself, what am I thinking right now when you catch yourself? Just in in a moment, it doesn't have to be anything significant going on. But what's going through my mind right now, or what am I feeling in my body right now? Mm-hmm. Um, small things like that are just bringing it in. It's obviously, yeah. If you if you do a, a silent retreat for thirty days, you're going to be in a different space than if you're just sort of checking in with your breath. But it doesn't mean it's it, it's not worth it then.
1: No, oh, yeah, it doesn't mean it's any less sacred either, mm-hmm. right? Like it's so it is sacred to just check in with yourself. I think one of one of my favorite Um, little kind of like meditation hacks that I like to do that's also really important for your physiology is just tell people to check in with your posture like three times a day you know posture is huge for helping us breathe and helping us digest our food and giving our body or giving our mind signals from our body right if we're used to being kind of like slouched over and slumped Mm -hmm. this is submissive body body posture right and so if we're, we're habitually training ourselves to be small and and all these things and if we train ourselves to just say okay check out your posture just just like let go of your jaw just okay now keep going and doing that a few times a day can actually be really helpful and i like i like to do that there was once that that was actually my my trick was that i I used to do New Year's resolutions, but like just, just one thing for a whole year, like nothing major. And one year it was posture. I was like, I just really want to work on my posture this year. And I started to really build that in. And I was like, holy crap, it made such a difference in, in making me feel a little bit more confident. Right. You, have you heard the, the Ted talk of the woman who talks about, and I know <sighs> I don't have her name, but like the
0: super poses and like, mm. the, I think the, it's the Sarah body. Cuddy. I think or something Cuddy. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And I love it. Right. And I do that before I have interviews, before I do stuff. I'm like, I get up like this morning before this talk, I went out and went for a run. It was like running like this. And it's just like the way you move your body has an effect on your mind, undoubtedly. So Mm -hmm. it's why not hack that, you know, like just take three seconds a day and check in with your posture. I think it's a really nice thing to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's, again, it's like a, a body awareness. Like what is my body doing? Uh, you now you know how's it feeling below the surface of of my skin and inside my organs or whatever I'm feeling. Um, but yeah, what, what? Where are my limbs? Like, where are my hands? How is my posture? What does that feel like? And it's funny whenever you anyone talks about posture, everybody all, all of a sudden straightens yes. up, right? Because we're yes. checking in with our posture. Yeah, totally, <laughs> it's like, a, oh
1: God, it's like yeah. a yawn.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and and it feels good. It does feel good. And I, I think, you know, and it, it lends to everything because our whole body is connected and structural function is so important for yeah, can we get a full breath if we're hunched over? Or was that actually due to our nervous system? And then our hormonal systems are affected by our posture. It's so crazy. Yeah. Um It's beautiful,
1: right? Like it's the whole bi-directional um
0: feedback loop that's
1: happening between our brains and our bodies is going in both directions. You know, this is really well documented in terms of the gut-brain axis, but there's also like, just like the, the physiological posture. I think there's a lot of really cool therapeutic research that's done in, in postural attitudes and what that means about the person's beliefs about themselves. Um, and it's not always hard and fast, but like, if you're someone who takes up a lot of space, you're sending a signal to your body, to your brain Hmm. If you're someone who deserves to take up a lot of space and you know it's and I, I shouldn't this isn't for any everybody by any means but uh but I think it's an interesting practice if you're someone who is, tends to be small to practice being big or if you're someone who's big to practice you know being hmm. modest in in a physical hmm. sense so um yeah it's just an interesting thing where we can play with our brains in a way that is it's so much more pliable than we think we think that our minds are just one way this is the way that I am this is my personality I've always been a stressed out person or whatever you can just change your body or change your breathing or change a small practice and it can actually have a really long a long-term effect at least just for the day you know you do this in the morning and you you could affect yourself for the day
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah it's like if you live every 24 hours as if it's a lifetime that could you know that that could be a great way to move towards a, a change that you want. How did you feel after that year of posture, New Year's resolution posture?
1: You know what? I remember feeling I was um, I was working a. This was when I was I don't I don't remember like late teens, and I was working um, a Halloween party at a restaurant that I was working at, and we had to wear these like dresses for the occasion. And I remember being, and it was like a high necked, like long sleeve kind of thing. And I felt very like fancy. And I remember standing there in the black dress um, and just feeling very at home in feeling um, like in this formal dress, I felt very like regal in a sense. And I was, and it didn't feel like I was acting and I felt, I felt very Proud of myself in that moment. It's like it's such a small thing to be proud of, but I was like, and I, you don't need the dress, you don't need the whatever. But it was just the occasion that made me realize that I was like, oh, I'm very at home in this posture where I feel formal and I feel, you know, not always formal is not always the thing I'm going for, but it just it felt very at home to be like, mm-hmm. um, secure. Mm-hmm. There's a word for it, and and it, that was by October, so I'd been working on it for several months. But I was like, I'm good here. And it, and it was that sense of, you know, safety and security and belonging that I had trained my body into being. Like, I deserve this space. I deserve to take up this amount of space. And I, I really, I remember that moment. Thank you for asking that question. I hadn't. I don't think I've ever really put it into words. So that's nice.
0: It's funny because as you we were talking, as you we were talking, I uh, <laughs> just dropped my mic. <laughs> um, I, I was visualing the words. Yeah, regal and 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 pride and how. Pride gets a bad rap sometimes because often it's people that are, um, you know, it's often um, pride is a, could be kind of in the realm of acceptance where we like feel like we need to like jump there without necessarily feeling it. But true pride is this embodied sensation of I'm happy with the space I'm taking up, with my existence, with what I've done, with what uh, what I'm here to offer. Um, I exist, you know, and I deserve to exist. And that's such a it's a powerful motion um for building trust and and confidence in one's resilience, I think. Is what mm-hmm. my mind is as you told that story of like, I'm good here. I'm yeah. good.
1: Yeah. And that's a that's a really powerful thing to be able to just trust that you <clears throat> you're worth taking up the space that you're taking up, right? And that's like listen to that whole psychological construct that came out of me standing with my shoulders propped. Like that whole thing was constructed. That whole feeling and sense of, a, of, of entitlement and entitlement, but but belonging and mm-hmm. and deserving. Huge out of just like, a simple postural thing. I think it's so cool. Like how many other things can we do? Um, behavioral changes and things like that that can, that can tell us that, you know, I'm worth taking 10 minutes in the morning to sit down and meditate. Even if it goes terribly, that's fine because I have compassion. But like I'm worth those 10 minutes because I deserve to set my day up in a proper way. It's like the whole narrative that we create, you talked about narrative therapy, but like the whole narrative that we create around the things that we do for ourselves is just as important as the things that we do for ourselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I remember when I first started doing yoga, I would love the classes where they would say, oh, this pose is good for your thyroid and this is what it does. And I think, yeah, creating a narrative is like almost selling someone because you your brain starts to envision, oh, what's my thyroid? Oh, my thyroid's supposed to do this after this posture. I Expect to feel like this, and then we start to look for, for clues. I mean, this is the the placebo effect. But the placebo effect, what we don't often talk about is is thirty percent response rate. Like you, you get a thirty percent reduction, in whatever symptom you don't want, and so that's not insignificant, and it comes with no side effects. Um, and what all the placebo effect is, is, is a meaning response. It means that our beliefs can influence
1: mm-hmm.
0: our physiology, you know, because when we're measuring placebo, it's not always subjective outcomes. We're also looking at things like heart rate and blood sugar, and that is all susceptible to a placebo. So, mm-hmm. which is why in studies, we have a control group that, ha- that gets a placebo because we want to make sure that the, that the medication isn't just, we want to make sure it has some extra effect beyond placebo. But this idea of, you know, if I create a narrative around, okay, if my posture is going to improve my, um, my confidence and my sense of pride and taking up space and it's going to allow me to rock this job interview. It, it has the added benefit of making that true because of the belief.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's great. I love that. And and why not work with that, that placebo effect, you know, responsibly, I think it's important to add in, but, uh, but it's just goes to show how, how strongly, um, Uh, how strong of a continuum it is between our mind and our body and how we can't, you know, we have to incorporate both if we're going to be changing either one.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's also like a false dichotomy, the mind body connection. You're like, well, it's, it's one thing. Well, and then even mind-body um, environment. I mean, we're also inside of the environment.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you, 100%. I, I completely agree. I was going to mention that. Like, mind-body environment, and not just in terms of, like, food, water, air that we surround ourselves with, but, like, our entire psychological environment, and the things, the activities we engage in, the people we have close to us, the job we have, you know, the meaning that we make out of things, that is not, that is not separate from, you know, what we eat for breakfast. I think it's,
0: mm-hmm. it's just as important to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it makes it complicated as mental health practitioners. <laughs>
1: it does it does, but that that's where the beauty is is that you meet you meet the person where they're at, right? And if you come in and and we kind of like assess, you know, is a person like really scientifically minded and so we're going to talk in terms of like biochemistry and like this is how it's going to help you or is someone aiming to talk a little bit more about like the meaning of something and then and then we'll go down that road and we can we can speak the language of the patient and then and then kind of introduce other ideas so that they have a balanced idea of what's going on but like yeah, that's the beauty of it is that we can offer many different perspectives because we have so many different tools as naturopathic doctors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Like you can come at it from so many different angles, which is, yeah, which is one of the things I love about naturopathic medicine. You can really invent things or work from the ground up. I, I, I think of it as like grassroots medicine. You mm. can really, um, like we mentioned before, have beginner's mind with regards to each new encounter um, and build something together you and the patient, which is really beautiful. And I'm curious about, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, compassion, how compassion feeds into mindfulness. And maybe we could talk a bit about that, about self-compassion or just compassion in general.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, if there's one, you know, we talk about like magnesium being like a huge common deficiency in North America. It's like, if there's a psychological deficiency, it's compassion. Mm. I think we, we struggle, especially self-compassion. Oh, it's so, it's so disheartening sometimes to hear the way that we speak to ourselves. Um, and it, compassion like i said it has got to be built in with the mindfulness as we become more aware of what is going on inside our minds it's really important to to build that piece in and and it can feel i mean even with my own practice sometimes it can feel kind of forced when you're like you know just trying to turn towards yourself with compassion but like you're so used to being negative and kind of having that like stick you know instead of the carrot being like hey you're going to do okay it's like do okay or else you know mm. um so it can it can feel a bit tough but it is so uh, loosening of the, of the tension when you can just like, just let yourself relax into a little bit of self-compassion. And, and this is one of those places where you really just need to practice it. You know, even if it feels a little uncomfortable, there's some really beautiful, um, you know, self-compassion meditations. One of the, the two people I'll mention in terms of self-compassion researchers that have great resources are Kristen Neff Mm. and Christopher Germer. Mm. So they both got books, like The Mindful Way to Self-Compassion. Kristen Neff has a new uh, book out. I think it's called The Yin and Yang of Compassion or something. Like there's there's two kinds of Um, self-compassion. One is like a very, very gentle, like it's okay, like a forgiving kind of like yin compassion. And the other one is like, you deserve this thing. Like you can go out and get it. Like that's also a compassion in a sense. Um, Like the mama tiger
0: compassion. Yeah. don't go near my cubs. I'm protecting them.
1: Yeah. Like a fierce, a fierce compassion is like absolutely just as much compassion. And, you know, one of the sayings about compassion is like if, if you practice compassion up the nose, but it doesn't include yourself and it's incomplete, you you can't, it's so hard to practice compassion for others, unless we also have softness and gentleness for ourselves. And it doesn't always have to be this like, you know, like fuzzy, you know, soft forgiveness thing. Like it, it can be this fierce, Defending of yourself and, and honoring of yourself in a really beautiful way. So mm-hmm. Kristen Neff, Christopher Germer, they both got websites with great resources, great books. Um, and then the, the meditation that I love for self-compassion is the meta meditation, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Sharon Salzberg is, is a great teacher. If you go on YouTube and, and search Sharon Salzberg, she's one of the original like kind of the OGs of mindfulness, um, bringing mindfulness to the Western world. Um, she studied at Europa, um, Naropa University in Colorado, which is one of the original, um, Shambhala based universities. They had a lot of really great meditative curriculum. And a lot of people came out of that, like Jack Kornfield and mm. some other teachers, ja, um, Mark Epstein as well. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Sharon Solberg and meta meditation—it's it's a practice of kind of like cultivating the sense of appreciation and, and gratitude in concentric circles, moving out from starting with yourself, moving out to someone that you love, moving out to someone that you're neutral towards, like maybe they sell you coffee, whatever, and then moving out to someone that you have difficulty with, and moving out to someone that has wronged you or hurt you, and you're generating these. And sometimes it's like it's tough, but you just you 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 try, you try, mm-hmm. and you're like, what is it like to try and extend compassion to this person, and and then. You you really do get better at it, and I remember there was one time when I had been practicing this for a period of time, and it felt kind of like uh, just like maybe just a practice, whatever. I I didn't really notice a change in my life. And then one day I was, it was like a beautiful summer day, and I was stressed about um, an ex. I I had been thinking about someone I had I had you know split with, and I was like thinking about them and missing them, and kind of feeling like upset with myself or whatever. And it was just this like just a passing thought. It was just a moment, and then. And then without even me noticing it, the next, the next thought was like, oh, sweetie. You know? And it was just like a tiny second of being like, oh. And that's one of the things that Kristen Neff talks about is using like a little a, a nice little like pet name for yourself. Just in a way that you might you might talk to your pet, like literally, like, sweetie, you're like, oh muffin. Or, and it doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And I had
1: been using that in my practices of like you know, may I be free from suffering? You know, like, Oh, sweetie, I hope you're okay. Oh, sweetie. Like, I wish this to yourself. Um, and then it just came up. Like, it was just like, I didn't even try. And it was just there. And I was like, Oh, sweetie, this must be hard. And then I was like, Whoa, that actually made that a lot easier to bear that moment of like, ah. and just having myself be there as a compassionate Partner in that moment because I'd been practicing, it just changed the whole moment. It was very very small. It was just a passing moment of like one thought, another thought, and then I was on to the next thing. But I was like, whoa! If this can can change something in a day to day life without me having to take the time out to like really practice compassion that moment, it was just there mm-hmm. because I'd been practicing. It was, I, I just that's one of my favorite moments of like really seeing a change in a practice, you know.
0: I love that so much because it's like, um, I mean, yeah, Kristen Neff talks about her her three stages of self-compassion. The first is obviously awareness, mindfulness, like what's actually present. And the second one is common humanity. And this is the idea of like, yeah, your mind's going to be, in the context of mindfulness, like your mind's going to be busy when you sit down and and meditate. Your body's going to feel restless. This is, everybody experiences this. Um, Or whatever is current for you in the moment, however you're suffering. It's like, this this is a universal, all the ways we suffer are, have their universality to them. You know, nobody's um, necessarily completely, uni- is, you know, we're all individuals, we're all unique, but the suffering that, that we feel is based on our, our living in human bodies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the third one is having some sort of, Intention to self-compassion that can sometimes look like uh, like we talk about mantras. Like I look in the mirror and I say, "You're awesome. You're so beautiful," or whatever. And and the issue with mantras and those kind of affirmations is that they actually make us feel worse because it highlights the discrepancy between what we want to feel or what we want to believe and what we're actually believing. But when we access what what just naturally sort of feels appropriate, like for you, it just this spontaneous oh sweetie came in and. It sounds like there was this sort of internal adult or internal mother that sort of held the the suffering part of you, and that just let you know it was there. Um, and I think you know one of my colleagues talks about this too, where she'll be like, you know, and sometimes those mantras are funny. Like one person I think in a Facebook group was saying hers is like yes ma'am or ma'am like to interrupt her sort of anxious thought she's like Hi, ma'am <laughs> and it's just you know like whatever it is if it's humor that breaks it up and mine is um when I was in Vietnam when they're sort of like they go o choy and so at any moments of frustration I'm like o and somehow it just helps disrupt the the spiral and mm-hmm. just sort of bring me back to yeah this like this sucks for everybody. This is ochoyo. Even in Vietnam, they have this thing. Like we, <laughs> like, nobody wants this. Like it's, it's okay. And um, so I love that. I love the like. It's so simple. It's yeah. not inaccessible. It's not like you have to come up with some grand belief. It's just, oh, sweetie. Hmm. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, and I love that so much because it's really how I feel like when I think about how tender I can be with this cat that I've known for weeks <laughs> like mm. I, I love her and I and I come up to her and I'm just like oh little sweetie and it's just it's inherent it's this like thing that flows and when it starts to flow for yourself wow mm. so powerful and it's it, when we finally have that compassion for ourselves it can really be a game changer it's I'm just remembering that moment and it's like really powerful it's really nice.
0: I love that so much. I mean, I it's come up for me a lot too with loving kindness meditation or meta that as you call it meta meditation. Um, and I think it was in a meditation workshop and we were doing it, and I put up my hand and I was like, ah, oh, you know, it just seems so contrived. I'm sending love to myself, I'm sending love to so and so. And and then now I'm sending love to my enemies, and I can't even think of enemies. But if I could think of them, I wouldn't want to send love to them, you know. <laughs> and and they were and I'm like, I can't, I can't just generate a feeling. And the instructors were like, well, it's not about generating a feeling. It's about the intention. It's about the intention, sending Mm -hmm. an intention for, for compassion. And that doesn't mean it's there, but when we send an intention, it's almost like we're, we're, you know, where, where attention um, goes is is sort of, I I mean, we're always pointing to something. So if I'm pointing my energy or my intention towards compassion, I'm going to take like maybe a shuffle in that direction. Yeah. You
1: know? it's like surfing. It's like you look where you, or you go where you look, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So don't, not at the bottom yeah. <laughs> at the breaking water on your face. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and, and so maybe that's really interesting. I've never asked a teacher this, but I wonder if it would be just as effective to say, I want, I want to be compassionate to myself, like mm-hmm. to meditate on that. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be compassionate to myself because I want my life to be, a little gentler than it's been, you know. Mm-hmm. Like maybe that's like a perfectly fine mantra, rather than being like, "I'm great," <laughs> you know.
0: Absolutely right. Yeah, I'm the most beautiful person. It's like, well, maybe, um, maybe I can set an intention to to be kind <laughs> to myself. Maybe that's that's more accessible. Well, again, yeah, and I think that's what um, often what the, the suggestions that Kristen Neff uh, brings forth are. May I be kind to myself? It's yeah. sort of a again an intention or is, is this possible? It's kind of like a question, you know, may I be, I don't know, but I'd like to be. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that, that's, <laughs> it's injecting a little bit of compassion, even into the practice of compassion. Cause you're like, even if this doesn't work, it's okay. Like, it's not like a hard, like, just like, just give it a shot. And like, we're practicing this thing and it's all right. Like, there's just so much like beautiful empathy that's built into all of these practices and I just have mm. so much respect for them. I think they're, so well thought out. Some of the researchers that have done this and some of the, you know, the ancient traditions that have established all of these practices way back when, like it just, I'm just so grateful.
0: Mm. Yeah, me too. I mean, it, and they're they're ancient, thousands of years old, and they stood the test of time and they're so simple in their technology. You sit and watch your breath, observe what's going on. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, it's going on, whatever's happening is happening. And then, um, and then intention's towards compassion and that's it really (laughs) and you could be doing doing this you could be sitting in the proper posture and you could be at a zen monastery or um i don't know on the subway
1: yes yeah totally it's sowing seeds right like we're sowing the seeds and then they're gonna sprout randomly on some summer day when you're being hard on yourself about some dumb thing and they're gonna come up and you're gonna go oh that is the result of my hard work at just setting
0: an intention Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Anything else you want to end up end off with, Lachlan?
1: I just want to keep talking. This is great.
0: (laughs) Let's keep talking. Yeah. If you want. I
1: I wanna know so much about your, you know, how you involve the narrative therapy in your practice. And you talked a little bit about that. Um Mm. yeah, I just I just think it's really amazing, you know, as practitioners we can weave in so many different tools. Um and how each practitioner has really great skills at doing various mm. you know, interventions. So I don't know. I just, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I love that you're doing this podcast. This is really badass.
0: Thank and, you. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully more, more listeners and subscribers. I mean, I really like the podcast forum. I think it's a great way to have cool conversations with people. And it's so easy to listen to podcasts. Like I'm a podcast listener because mm-hmm. I'll listen as I'm going about my day. And, uh, and and something is comforting about hearing people converse and learning through conversation has always been kind of um, interesting to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's 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 a flow that we achieve in a conversation um, where because there's there's an element of listening and then responding, and I think that's essentially what a flow state involves, right? Like whether it's art. You're, you're paying attention and then there's a response, whether it's medicine, um, surfing, you're responding to a changing environment and to unknowns. And that's a very rewarding thing to be part of, but also to witness. Like We love watching sports because sports are all about that, right. or dance or um, whatever art form it is, because we're watching somebody who's, who's uh, very gracefully responding to life in some way.
1: Beautiful. Well, Talia, it's been, it's been beautiful dancing with you today.
0: Yes. Thank you for this <laughs> dance, Lachlan. <laughs> yeah,
1: so great. Okay. Thank you so much. And thanks to your listeners too. Like this is, it's such an honor to be able to just like, yeah, just be here with you. Thank you.